clinching defeat from the jaws of victory. It happened in Manchester last week and unfortunately for Pakistan, not for the first time. This is ESPN Cricket for Stump Mike. I'm Karthik Ayer and will be joined by Daniel and Miller to look back at some of Pakistan's most traumatic and dramatic test defeats in recent memory. We travel from Hobart to Antigua via Karachi and Abu Dhabi, reliving some of the biggest head-in-hand moments for Pakistan fans. See you on the other side. So there's a popular wordplay going around on social media and it goes something like this. Day one, Babar's drives. Day two, sensational Shan. Day three, all-round Yasir. Day four, England win. Now on this stump mic, we have with us Daniel Rasool. And while that doesn't tell us half the story of the Test match, Daniel, it does tell us why we are here to discuss Pakistan's most dramatic defeats. Yes, absolutely. It was an extraordinary Test match in this in this one aspect that Pakistan appeared to dominate um, at least two and a half of the four days, maybe more than that. And uh, right up until the last two sessions, it looked like Pakistan would canter to victory. And then when that didn't happen, obviously, that... Uh, conjures up certain memories, particularly of the Hobart test in 99, which we'll speak about, but several other Pakistan defeats where fans, the fans felt that they really should have come away with an away win. Yeah, and joining Daniel on this episode of Stump Mike, we have with us Andrew Miller from the United Kingdom. And Andrew, who has spent a lot of his career covering England. Before we get to Pakistan, how impressive for England was this win? Hugely impressive. I mean, I, I'd written it off, frankly. I, I, I figured that some, um, I mean, I've watched England very closely over the last few years, and I know they are a different side now than they were on, uh, even, you know, eight months ago during the Ashes, a very gung-ho team that would just uh, put pedal to the metal and, and, and swing for the hills and probably get bowled out in two sessions. Uh, but they actually played very cannily this time around. They, they took that same positive mindset, in particular, Chris Wokes and, and Joss Butler, you know, they, 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 decided that they were going to get the runs before they had a ball with their name on it, which is the same principle they've had all along. They just applied it better. Uh, but I never saw that coming. I, 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 I'm, I share a, I believe that England and Pakistan share a kindred um, when it comes to agonising defeats, you know, usually at the hands of Australia and, and again at the hands of India for Pakistan. You know, we're, I think we're both teams that uh, have to put up with an awful lot from our arch enemies, but when we do get one over, we do love to uh, rub it in their faces. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, I, I feel I feel Pakistan's pain because I've been there in similar circumstances in, in many an Ashes campaign. And um, yeah, I, I'm sure I'll be there again uh, in in a couple of years' time, no doubt. So in this, uh, in this episode, we're going to cover a lot about Pakistan. But before we go there, Miller, in brief, what what can England take from this performance? Like, what is the key... I think, I don't know, the area of improvement or something unexpected, maybe Butler's performance, or is it the fact that Stokes is not going to be there for the next two tests? What is the biggest story going around in England cricket at the moment? I think it's the belief. I think it's just there's a, there's something about this team dynamic that they, you know, they're, they're a squad now, and, and whereas previously England have had 11 good players and then, you know, one of them, one of them falls by the wayside, particularly a key all-rounder like Stokes, and you're struggling for balance and you're just not not up to the mark in the same way they used to be. But but now England have got a proper squad. I mean, they've got any number of fast bowlers can come in. Stokes is going to be a massive loss, but uh, they play for each other. Um, they play for um, the cause, whatever that may be, and they play damn well. And they're also a fascinating side to watch. I mean, they've won six in a row under Root now. Obviously, they lost when Stokes was captain the other day. But uh, on any given day... England can can win lose you know they they made a habit of losing the first test of a series and bouncing back. Uh, I thought they were going to lose the first test of this series and and they confounded me. So uh, yeah, they're, they're they're great fun to watch. I I I I'm having a lot of fun covering them. In, in you know there was a time a few years ago almost they they you know around around the time they got to number one in the world in 2011, uh, they were actually a bit boring. They just they won very mechanically and you know. Mr. Cook at the top of the order would grind people to death with Jonathan Trott coming after them. You don't get much of that anymore. Dom Sibley's trying to fill that breach, but it's really, <laughs> it's really about the, uh, it's really about the chaos that still exists in that middle order. And um, yeah, it's fun to watch. It's now Joe Root's sixth victory as captain on the trot, and you know, looking at the news generally surrounding him and probably the coverage, it 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 cover comes from the fact that his batting has not been the best. I think it's just one century in in eighteen months is. Is his captaincy still being discussed as 
problematic for English cricket? Um, less so. Um, it was very much when England lost again, losing the first Test series in South Africa uh, mm-hmm. before, before Christmas. They that was basically ground zero for Root. Everyone thought another another defeat, and and they'd probably have to call time on him. But again, the, the team play for him. The team get out of bed for him. You got Ben Stokes is the ultimate vice captain to Root. He stands by him, stands in for him, but never undermines him. He wants Root to succeed. He likes Root. The team like Root. And um, James Anderson was talking about it yesterday, and obviously Anderson's a man who's been through many captains and many regimes over the past 17 years. And he said that the current regime is the most empathetic he's ever played under. As in, you know, they, they, they make an effort to care about each other. And it, it all sounds a bit touchy-feely, but it, but it actually matters, particularly in a series like this, which is obviously under lockdown. They've got to, be, got to spend an awful lot of time in each other's pockets in the hotels. And um, it helps they get on. And that really does come come down to Root. I think he sets a lot of that dynamic. The fact that it, I think he's still a terrible captain on the field is by the by. It's, uh, <laughs> it, certainly can, it certainly counts for something that, that the team want to play for him. I just wanted to interject with a question. Do you think the fact Stoke, uh, ben, when Ben Stokes captained against the West Indies and England lost, do you think that somewhat helped Root's status as captain um, in the long term, in, given that he has this six-match winning streak? And when uh, Ben Stokes took over the reins, um, uh, England slumped to defeat. Possibly, although I don't, I don't think anyone really held that against Stokes. I think, I think he played the right shots at the right moment, and obviously were, were beaten on that last day by by a good innings from Jermaine Blackwood. But you know, four wicket defeat um, was was not a bad effort um, in the circumstances. So I, I honestly don't think it would have mattered. I think, I think the Stokes was so keen to make it clear that you know when when the, when when the skipper's back, I hand over and I don't. No one asks me about it again. Um, I think, yeah, it, it's going to take it's going to take root losing rather than Stokes winning. I think for for a, a long term change in leadership. So we'll uh, leave this discussion on the current England team with one final question, Miller, and this is something that we have to address because uh, we know that James Anderson has a lot of fans in the subcontinent, and I do not mean that in any tongue in cheek manner. <laughs> he has come out and fought the criticism that uh, he was going to possibly announces retirement after the test or after the series. He said that one bad test does not make a bad player. It certainly doesn't. Um, I mean, I I remember interviewing Anderson, um, must have been about three years ago. It was, um, you may recall, he, he was late arriving on a tour of India because he had a shoulder problem. And uh, it was the first major injury he'd had. And he was, what, he would have been 35 at that stage. And I kind of, I asked him for fairly straight up, you know, India is not the happiest hunting ground for, for a bowler of your type. Is it now time for you to start picking and choosing your your tours a little bit more, and and you know make sure that you last longer in conditions that suit you? And he was absolutely categorical. No way. He wants to be out there. He wants to be part of the fighting. Then lost four 0 but he, he he got himself out there. Got himself involved. His appetite for the hard labour of fast bowling is second to none. Um, and you cannot fault that. You can't you can't be the sort of competitor that he's been over the course of what is it 100, 150 odd Test matches and and nearly 600 wickets, you can't be that competitor without being that competitor absolutely across the board. So, yeah, if he says he's not finished, he's not finished, and he will come out and do his damnedest to prove us wrong. It'll, it'll be, you know, it'll be a case of him being, being jettisoned, I suspect, rather than retiring. He's, he's a, he doesn't want to go. He's, he's, he loves his career. He's loved it for his entire adult life, and he's not giving it up, and, and fair play on him. It's very subcontinental of him, isn't it, um, to hang around until his late until his late thirties um, with people calling for his retirement and him adamant to show that he still has something to offer. I think he'll genuinely win a few fans in the subcontinent with that. Yeah, it's very Capital Dev, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jabagal Srinath or his equivalent is going to be grinding his teeth in the background. <laughs> now on to Pakistan. Then both uh, Daniel, both Azhar Ali. And Mizbah said similar things after the match. Azar said that we had this game in the in the palm of our hands. Mizbah wrote a letter, if I'm not mistaken, on the PCB website saying that England were a bit lucky to win to win on the fourth the fourth day. Do, do you agree with those sentiments? Was it just something that doesn't go or your way? Um, I mean, on the fourth day, it's hard to say um, what they could have done in terms of the bowling. Um, I think strategically, Azar Ali. Um, was found wanting in a couple of departments. I do think um, it took a while before he realized he needed to get Yasser back on after the... Um, but in terms of the pitch, you see the, the delivery that Oli Pope got out to. After that, it appeared the pitch just stopped, flattened out, stopped misbehaving. Um, the ball stopped swinging. 
um, Butler and Wokes took the attack to Pakistan in a way that the new ball was almost out of the equation. I think the sentiment that's been echoed and it's hard to and one that's hard to argue with is that they lost it more in the third innings when they batted with a few softest missiles at drop in intensity, in my opinion, than much they could have done in the fourth innings. Um, there weren't any dropped catches. Yes, Butler and Wokes rode their luck slightly, but it wasn't like Pakistan missed obvious chances um, uh, in the way that uh, some of the defeats that we will discuss um, uh, included such misses and such glaring um, ways that they could have um, won matches and instead didn't. So as what happens with every defeat for Pakistan, the captain cops a lot of criticism and Azhar Ali is no different. Miller, now objectively, what did you make of Azhar Ali's captaincy? Could he have done something different? And was his non-usage of Shadab Khan a factor in their defeat? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I, I was surprised that he was ignored in the first innings. I was surprised he was ignored for so long in the second innings. I, I kind of thought that it was going to be a case of, okay, if you're not going to use him first time round, it's because you want to spring a surprise second time round when the pitch is ragging. And he didn't. He just did. He 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 just let, let Yasser do do all the spade work. Um, I just think just you know just that opportunity to change it up with with a, with a different type of spinner, leg spinner, all the same, but you know maybe a better googly on from time to time. Uh, yeah, I, I I you can you can nitpick though. I I don't I don't know much that the captain could have done other than post a few more attacking slips and, you know, have people in the right place. But again, when you've got a, got a guy like a guy like Butler, who's, who's setting out to disrupt your field by reverse sweeping out of the rough and taking chances, you don't want to be losing the, the guys who are going to be catching those, those mishits. I mean, there were, there were a couple of balls that completely exploded on Butler. There's one that the, 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 the Googly, I think it was that burst through the top and hit him in the chest um, there was that ball that Ollie Pope got. I mean, ball that Ollie Pope got in both innings. Frankly, there was there was enough in the conditions to suggest that patience is all that Pakistan need here. And to be fair to England, they didn't allow them patience. You know, they didn't they didn't allow them a single maiden in the course of that whole um, final day. You know, that partnership, um, which was crucial. I thought they they probably missed a trick in not getting Mohammad Abbas back involved sooner, simply because you know someone who's going to just tie up the end. With especially the Roy Rizwan was keeping. I mean, his keeping was sensational, and so having him standing up to the stumps would have again put a seed of doubt in England's minds. And, and doing that soon enough, when there are still runs to play with, to allow your leg spinner to attack at the other end, and also to allow the new ball to have proper impact, because that was England's plan. They didn't want to have 50, 60, 70 runs left when the new ball came, because they knew that would that would probably be enough to have a catast- catastrophic collapse. So. Those are the areas in which Azza was slow to react. He he didn't see what England's plans were soon enough, and by the time he 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 had the new ball, uh, the game was pretty much done. It's one of the uglier traits in Pakistan cricket um, to see uh, at times ex players um, absolutely jump on a player when he's down. Azza really wasn't great. I've said that. I um, I wrote about it as well. This is he is still a fairly new captain in terms of captaining the international side. As Michael Aston pointed out on Sky, this is the first time he's been involved in a genuinely close game. Um, yes, of course, um, I, th- I thought he missed a few tricks, but they, it's not like there's an obvious um, replacement in that. Yeah, people say Sean Masood could potentially be captain, but there's no obvious solution to um, what he could have done to immediately change the game. I thought he was under pressure. I think he'll grow from the experience. Um, but the problem is in Pakistan, you may not get that time. So he needs to... Uh, he needs to at least ensure Pakistan come away without not being embarrassed in the series. Sometimes Pakistan fall away after losing a close game like this. So yeah, Azhar Ali wasn't great, but I do think he's going to be getting good advice. And there's um, there are a few mistakes that he might not make again. Okay, so for now, enough of the current England versus Pakistan series. Uh, we're going to go back and look at some of Pakistan's more, how do I put it, traumatic or dramatic defeats over the past, I don't know what, over 20 years. Daniel, we're not going further beyond that, right? Let's let's just let's stick to the last 20, 20 odd years. Yeah, let's stick to my ruined childhood. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that the first one that, that we have to start with, and I think that we all remember extremely fondly, is Hobart in 1999. Now, this test match was sandwiched between two easy victories for Australia in, in their series. And in hindsight, you would think that this was Pakistan's best chance to avoid a whitewash. Australia's target was 369 in in their fourth innings. They were 126 for five 
not unlike where they were at in Manchester a few days ago. And then Daniel, smack, bang, wallop, Adam Gilchrist happened. More like swept, swept on the onside, but you get the point. Yeah, the thing about Australia is um, every time Pakistan go to Australia, there's this um, there's a hope. Oh, all Pakistanis of this generation, the one that I grew up with, just want to see Pakistan win a test match in Australia, basically. Every time Pakistan go to Australia, it is the same story. Uh, Pakistan may push Australia in one or two test matches. It happened in this a series. This is where it all started. But every time they've gone, they've now lost, I believe, 12, 14 test matches spanning five different whitewashes in Australia. It's just horrific. And this is arguably where the mental scarring started because Pakistan, uh, Mohammed Wasim was a young opener. He started, started off well in that uh, first innings. Pakistan got them down to 126 for five. And obviously, Adam Gilchrist wasn't the player that we now know that he is. And uh, he did essentially what... Um, uh, Chris Wilkes and Josh Butler did uh, earlier this week. They, he just started to counterattack. They ended the day on a bit of a high, even though they still had, I think, uh, 190 runs still to get. And Justin Langer hung around with him. Um, I believe uh, Adam uh, Gilchrist had almost equaled his tally on the same day, on the fourth day. And on the fifth day, just kept continuing to counterattack. There was a chance, which a lot of Pakistanis keep bringing up, where Justin Langer nicked off... Um, uh, to the keeper, I think Wasim Akram was bowling, and then he signaled to the umpire as part of his <laughs> elite honesty that uh, it was a, <laughs> it was a clicky backhander, which obviously it wasn't. But then again, <laughs> Peter Parker I think was fooled, and uh, uh, yeah, that was one of the crucial moments. But I mean, Pakistan can't have too many complaints if you have a side 126 for five, and they're chasing 364. You really 369 you really should get them out and it was all down to Adam Kilchrist if they didn't. True, there was there were a lot of runs to get, especially when Justin Langer refused to walk. But Miller, I think it's kind of fair because I remember it was in this test match that Akhtar bowled a beamer at Langer and he just smashed him on the arm. Yeah, I believe, I believe I'm right in saying he also got a stinker in the first inning, so he felt it was karma. So, uh, um, but no, it, it was it was a fascinating, fascinating debut. I mean, you know, we're talking about a guy here who had been just champing at the bit for probably three, four years by now. He'd made his ODI debut in 1996. So after the um, the, the World Cup final against Sri Lanka, uh, where obviously Ian Healy had, had played, finally he prizes the gloves off Healy in the one-day side. He goes off and, and you know, plays plays a winning hand in the World Cup in England in 1999. He made a 50 against Pakistan in the final, obviously. And then finally gets his chance to make his make his test debut so you know he was he was a seasoned world cup winning veteran by the time he he got on the got on the scene and and, and prized the gloves out of healy's cold dead hands and <laughs> just made a made a play for it from the word go i mean obviously this was his second test but the first first test he, in a 10 wicket wins obviously there was there wasn't an awful lot of jeopardy around but he belted a rapid 81 just to just to announce to people yep i'm here this is this is me at number seven this is how i roll and this innings was just 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 ludicrous. I mean, it, it it still, I still don't think anyone has bettered Gilchrist's ability to just appear at number seven and scare the bejesus out of an opposition attack. I mean, there's no, there's no one like it. You, you get you get to get to five down in most innings, and you think, oh, we're nearly through the tail, and that strides Gilchrist. Uh, it, it's just it's extraordinary. I, re- I remember the one of my early tests I was covering in. Uh, for Crook Info, it would have been um, 2002, the uh, South Africa tour. And he was in such dominant form in the midst of his double century at Johannesburg. He started taking pot shots at a billboard at mid-wicket, which offered a, <laughs> offered a million dollars, million, million, million rand if you hit the billboards full on. And mid, midway through a test match, he's, he's taking pot shots at this billboard and missed it by a whisker. It was absolutely extraordinary. He, in, in full flow. Absolutely nobody like him. I, I, again, I was very privileged to watch him in the in the World Cup final in in um, Barbados, he, the, the the squash ball innings against Sri Lanka. And uh, again, that, that when that bottom hand comes comes scything through, it, he just creates angles and power that that no one has replicated. And he was, and to bring that all that nous, all that power, all that know how into the Test arena as he did with with you know with such a plum so early in his career. It's no wonder Pakistan didn't have an answer to him because, you know, no team had an answer to him. So, Miller, which was the better 149? Was it this one or the one in the World Cup final? Good question. Um, I'm always a sucker for test cricket. 
Um, I mean, that, that, that World Cup final was incredible. I mean, you know, the, yeah, it, to, to have been there and to have witnessed it uh, was a privilege. But I think, you know, in a test scenario with, with, with this sort of run chase to hunt down and the way it went about it, I mean, you give me a test innings over a one-day innings almost any time, I think. After the match, when, when the winning runs are hit, Kilkris goes and collects all three stumps from one end. He doesn't just take one. He just takes all three. And I think it's Vaughn with him at the other end who's trying to pull one away from him. Yeah. But I, I don't know if he was successful or not. But that, that was some, some sight. It is, it, is, it, it is especially amazing because um, while he might have been a seasoned veteran when it comes to ODI cricket, Pakistan, you see sometimes Pakistan in the 1990s due to either internal disputes or... Um, Potential, uh, potentially more insidious <laughs> um, inquiries. They have certain players missing. But when you look at this particular bowling attack, it's Wasim, Wakar, Shoaib, Saklan, Mushtaq, Azam, Mahmood. Pakistan couldn't have asked for a better attack in the 90s or arguably at almost any time in their history. And it's day five. It's day five. Um, uh, the opposition are chasing 370. Pakistan have never, ever been defeated when, um, uh, when, uh, when they've set a chase of 300 until this situation. And then Gilchrist just comes in, this rookie in Test cricket, playing his second innings, and yeah, basically schools Wasim, Bukhar, Shoaib, and Saklen. Um, I, I I still think for all of Gilchrist's magnificence, I don't think he could have played a better Test innings. And and just on, on that point, I mean, the other the other thing to factor in is of course the first innings when when um, that that same attack absolutely routed um, Australia. They took, took nine for fifty five in about thirty overs. Um, wickets were, you know, Sacklin did the bulk of it, but the wickets were shared around broadly. And it was, you know, just side through them, went from 191 for two to 246 all out. It, you know, absolutely typical, you know, sort of the, the, the Pakistan second wind with an older ball and, and just start hurtling through opponents. That's that's how they rolled in the, in the 1990s. It was, it, it was magnificent to watch. And when they get on a roll like that, you kind of think, my God, there's no coming back from from a from a sucker punch such as they're able to give. I mean, I you know I speak again, my experience of being an England fan in the 1990s, watching the 1992 series a number of times. England England would start well with Gooch going nicely and maybe Atherton or someone at the other end, and then all of a sudden you get howitzered by spin and spin and, and reverse swing. This was always threatened to happen, and the fact that Gilchrist refused to let it happen and and just kept pummeling. Uh, is extraordinary. You know, I, I, I think you have to legislate for genius sometimes. And I, I, I know we're, we'll probably end up ranking the trauma ultimately, but I think you, you can excuse this one for trauma because sometimes you just have to say, okay, fair enough. That, that's, that's, that's just awesome. One final quick point. You see uh, the thing that Miller mentioned about Saklen. So you see him dragging the ball on day two. I think he took six or seven wickets. Six wickets. That's um, right. Six wickets. Six yeah. wickets. And then you think there's no way in hell that on day five he's going to allow Australia to score 370. Um, uh, two left-handers particularly. Um, uh, and then, yeah, this happened. So once again, just pointing out how utterly ridiculous that scorecard is. No, it was. So in my notes, I actually have this question, which I didn't ask on the podcast. But it says, Daniel, what happened to Saklen? Like that, that was literally one of the questions. But then when Miller puts Gilchrist genius in such words, there's, there's, there's no point in, in slating the bowler at, at, at that point of time. But now it's time to move on from Hobart a few months and we'll go to Antigua, where the first two tests of a West Indies versus Pakistan series were drawn. This was a three-match series. Now in the final test, West Indies needed 216 to win with plenty of time on their hands. I mean, at the beginning of day five, uh, it was 72 away from victory with, what, what is it, six wickets in hand. You would expect West Indies to go on and win from there. But then Wasim got his fifth of the day. I think Mushtaq Ahmed took a wicket and uh, did Saklen as well. There was one more spinner who took a wicket. But yeah, it, 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 the equation ended up being that West Indies needed 19 runs with one wicket in hand. And at that point, Danyal, you expect Pakistan to win the match. Yeah, so Nata and I did a whole article about this a few months ago. We spoke; to, He spoke to Jimmy Adams and I spoke to some of the Pakistan players. And I remember, I, ha- I have memories of watching the final day. You remember, you know, in when Pakistan or any subcontinent side plays in the West Indies, the test matches end fairly late. So I was only on day five. I was allowed to stay up till the end of the first session. Um, and I knew that's when the game would effectively end because West Indies waited 72. And yeah, uh, 19, uh, 19 runs with one wicket to go is 
is a tense situation, but you have to remember just how many chances Pakistan missed. Pakistan missed two clear-cut runouts when both Jimmy Adams and Kirti, once it was Kirti Walsh, once it was Ambrose, I believe, they were at the same end, and Yunus Khan, both occasions, threw the ball to Sakla and Mushtaq, and he managed to fumble the throw. Um, uh, Dakkawi, I think the umpire, he missed a couple of clear backside decisions, a court behind against Jimmy Adams in Pakistan, weren't very happy. Um, I was speaking to Mohammed Wasim about this, actually, and when Pakistan ended up losing and they were sat in the dressing room disconsolate, he said that uh, the umpire, Dakkawi, poked his head in and said, I've seen some replays. I'm sorry, guys. And he just bolted. <laughs> and I, I, would, I, would, I would do if if I saw Wasim Akram seething in a dressing room like that. But yeah, it was utterly ridiculous because for all of the umpire's mistakes, Pakistan still should have wrapped it up and they didn't. And it was remarkable. The sheer unlikeliness of West Indies winning this was remarkable because uh, Jimmy Adams showed great steel. But yeah, um, that result was never on the cards. You can probably understand Wasim's frustration as well. I mean, he's had a test where he's taken six in the first innings and five in the in the second. And still, Pakistan do not come away with... Just watch how much the ball was swinging towards the end. Wasim Akram was uh, uh, on unplayable, both um, towards the end of day four and on day five. It's just it's just absurd that... Um... Which, which makes it, Miller, extremely impressive that... Courtney Walsh, he batted 24 balls. He faced 24 balls. He batted for more than an hour as Jimmy Adams, his captain at that point of time, sealed a one-wicket win. Yeah, and uh, and Adams, I believe, basically said him said to him when he came out, right, whatever, whatever happens, you are not facing Wazim. I don't I don't know how many how many balls he faced from him, but the way he was hooping it was just extraordinary. He, he I think he had Sackley down the other end, and you know Courtney used his long levers to get forward to the spin and smother it as best he could. I mean, he, yeah, 24. 24 balls for his four not out, um, you know, reminiscent of, of his other great not out uh, the, the previous year, in fact, against Australia when uh, in Barbados, when he when he helped shepherd uh, uh, Brian Lara over the line. And, and obviously the, the great iconic moment of that was his um, his leave alone outside off to uh, Jason Gillespie, I think it was. And then he punches his gloves in triumph as he sees that Gillespie has overstepped. It's one, one, of, one of the great fluid movements in, in Courtney Walsh's uh, idiosyncratic batting career. But no, he's, he's, he was ex- one of my favourite batsmen to watch because his his limbs just never quite went where they should as a batsman. But uh, they did on this occasion. He did absolutely everything he could to support Adams. But I mean, I mean, broadly speaking, though, it, it was it, it was around that era. I mean, there had been that tipping point for West Indies five years earlier when obviously Australia beat them for the first time in the Caribbean for for twenty odd years. Uh, first time any side of one uh, beaten them for for twenty odd years, and and there was that sort of assumption there that 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 that's the end of the fight. They they were going to roll over, and I remember vividly everyone saying, "Oh, they're, they're not the team they used to be." They were still a damn good team in those days. I mean, you know, still got Ambrose and Walsh in their prime. I mean, you know, Franklin Rose and Rion King never quite came through, but Jimmy Adams had a good time as captain. Then obviously Lara was missing this game, but uh, Chanderpaul's a fine player. Really, Jacobs was a very good wicketkeeper, probably the best they'd had since Dujon. So they still had the bare bones of a side that was that was gonna gonna fight for fight like fight fight like anything to to protect their realm. Um, you know, they did the same against Zimbabwe. Um, I can't remember the before or after. It was a very very much around the same time. Bold Zimbabwe out in double figures to to win a test that they really had no right to get out of. Um, it happened a lot, and it was no coincidence it happened because you know they there there was there was pride, and that pride really shone through every time they were put up put up against the wall as they were in this test. There was this classically comic Pakistani moment towards the end when um, West Indies needed fourteen to win, and uh, Jimmy Harden was trying to keep the strike whenever he got the chance, and off the last ball um, of I think Awasim Akram over. Um, he blocked the ball back to Wasim. There was no way, obviously, he could keep the strike. And Wasim was agitated. He thought he'd had Jimmy Adams early in the over. And he just kicked the ball away. And then Jimmy Adams and Walsh actually ran that single that they needed to run. <laughs> because the ball was obviously alive. And yeah, so obviously when it's one wicket to go, every run and every moment like that counts. And that, who knows, might have played a part as well. Yeah, we'll never know. But what we do know is that on that day, Captain West Indies captain Jimmy Adams was carried off the field by the fans to give us a photo for the ages. Now, we'll go ahead just a few months again, 
what a year this was for Pakistan and defeats. <laughs> yeah, so, it's amazing to think that all this happened in probably a 13th month period. And we are at Karachi in 2000. This is, of course, against England. And Andrew Miller, you were there at the stadium. But before you tell us your experience, I'm just going to give context to the test. So the opening two tests of the series were drawn. Pakistan managed 405 in Karachi in the first innings and England responded with 388. I remember Inzamam and Yusuf Yohana scored centuries. And even in their first innings, Pakistan lost their last seven wickets for 80-odd runs. But you were there sitting in the press box, Miller. At the start of the final day, Pakistan was 70 for three. What was the mood like? Was it was it was it heading towards? It was probably heading towards another draw. Or did you feel that maybe Pakistan would have pushed and tried to set a target? I I thought everybody everybody was thinking about the flight home. The, the, um, I was I was actually it was my very first tour. I, I was out there on a, on a bit of a false pretense. I was, I was pretending to be a journalist <laughs> in those days and just about getting away with it. Um, but um, but that's that's a, that's a story for another day. Uh, but no, I I was in the press box and. Uh, Basically, the team and most of the journalists were going to be flying home on the same flight that evening, and so really it was a countdown to because to, it was it was a, it was mid December, Christmas was coming back home, people had been out there for two months. It was a long tour. It had been, frankly, an incredibly tedious tour. I mean, the first test in Lahore, um, Graham Thorpe scored a century that contained one boundary. I mean, uh, that that was that was the extent of the excitement. Um, I think uh, Sacklane took eight wickets in, in that same innings, but it was eight for about. 190 off 70 over it was it was a, it was a stinker and you know it's continued in a similar vein in Faisalabad and then finally we get to Karachi and and I think Michael Atherton um, scored a, uh, a dreadfully dry century and Michael Henderson who was the, the Telegraph correspondent and actually a good friend of Athers they, they, they both enjoyed their wine and and, and would, would, would share um, share you know, share thoughts at the end of the day, but he left a note under Atherton's door at the end of that test, saying, "If you intend to carry on batting like that, I'm going home tomorrow." <laughs> and so, <laughs> but he made 125, I seem to recall, and um, you know, it was a century of characteristic self-denial and monumental tedium. I think was at uh, a strike rate of below 30. Yes, it was. It was just thoroughly, thoroughly tedious. But it was it was what England needed. I mean, this was this was man, this was the mantra that. Um, Nasser Hussain had given his, t- given his side. Because remember, Hussain was very new to the England captaincy. He'd taken over um, the previous, previous year. Uh, he'd just beaten um, West Indies at home for, for you know, first time, first time England had, had triumphed in, in, in a series against West Indies in decades. And he was just beginning to forge a team in, in, his, in his identity with tenacity and grit. And his mantra was, was stay in the game at all costs. Basically, he told his guys that, look, I don't care how long it takes. Just don't give them a sniff. And if they, if you don't give them a sniff, then the only option is either they don't give you a sniff or they do give you a sniff. You know, so it's, it's draw or draw or opportunity, but don't give them any chance to beat you. And that's exactly what England did. And and yeah, there was that uh, that crucial moment where 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 uh, Ashley Giles much lampooned, or the, although at that stage of his career, no one really gave him much thought. To be honest, this was a, his comeback tour of, of Pakistan and. It was only later that, that you know the wheelie bin jibes came out, but he pulled he pulled a pulled, pulled one out of the bag with a with a belter to bowl in the mum, and it just opened the door a little bit, and 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 a little bit a little bit of complacency snuck in, combined with a bit of panic, and all of a sudden England are faced with a position where you know what we we we've got a chance here, and and that's where life uh, life got really interesting on that final day. So on that final day, um, England needed, in Karachi, England needed 176. I think they had 44 overs to get it in. And a much talked about now victory in the dark. Uh, Daniel, I, you've obviously seen this on TV again multiple times. And to be very fair, at least when I watch the videos on YouTube and on television, I can't see any of Ian Thorpe's drives towards mm-hmm. the end. But, but, but Steve Buckner was unmoved. Yeah, so the context um, of this was, first of all, it was an important test for Pakistan because Pakistan had an unbeaten record at the National Stadium to defend. And that was a source of incredible pride to them, particularly to um, uh, not lose to an England side that they, um, it looked like this match would end up in a draw the way England had played, especially in the first innings as well. But then Pakistan had won um, a crazy test match in Karachi five years ago against Australia where Inzamam and Mushtaq struck up a 60-run partnership, I think, to win that game. Ian Healy missed a stumping towards the end. And so there was this air of invincibility around Karachi where 
everyone was sure they weren't going to lose here. But then, yes, on the final day, when Pakistan slumped to uh, $158 out, I remember Afridi was batting with Danish Canaria, and I always felt, even watching live then, that he gave Canaria a few too many balls to try and um, fend off against Darren Goff, it proved lethal. But then the way England had batted, they needed four and over, more than four and over um, uh, on that final day. And no one really expected them to be able to get there. But Moin Khan wasted so much time, it counted against him. And Steve Buckner was just was just adamant that no ma- even even if we get this, these overs done by midnight, we are going to get these overs in. And everyone in Pakistan was fuming at uh, Steve Buckner. So at the end, end of the match, Miller, of course, I think it was an inside edge that gave England victory. And it, and it was it was in darkness. Now... I remember when I see the videos, there are a few English fans in 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 the stadium. There's of course the English media in the press box. Was this was this like a full entire team celebration all together, everyone together, or did you all have to run away and catch your flights? <laughs> well, a bit of both actually. I mean, you know, just on, on the subject of the, of the darkness, first and foremost. I mean, you know, the TV TV shows that it's dark, but I mean, it doesn't show how dark it was. I I, I was actually trying to write a uh, running copy for for I think it was Manchester Evening News. I was filing it too, but not they were taking it. Um, but uh, I I wrote that the the winning shot was a was a square cut for four. I couldn't see that it was an inside edge. I just all I saw was the blade flashing through the gloom, and and I didn't see anything else. And you know, you saw later on there were a couple of shots that went out to the men in the deep. They just didn't move. They had absolutely no idea where the ball was going. Or, and and you know, by that stage. Uh, Moeen Khan had been completely hoisted by his own petard. He he thought that it would be England's batsmen who would struggle, but ultimately, as long as they laid bat on ball and got it into any gap, there were runs. Um, yeah, it was it, it was it was extraordinary. There, at one stage, because you know, even even though uh, even though Steve Buckner was clearly uh, digging his heels in and saying we are going to play to a finish, there was going to come a point when it was going to actually be pitch black because the sun was setting so quickly over the, over the horizon. And, you know, the, there were light, you know, the red lights on top of the stadium were, were glowing because, you know, it was, it was, it was pitch black by, by the, within, within about 10 minutes, I think of the final shot. And um, you could hardly see in front of your hand. If this was day four and then England hired 175 to chase on day five on a Karachi pitch, there would have been trepidation around, oh, how are we going to negotiate the spinners? How will we see off the new ball? But, but because all they were thinking about was getting these runs at four and over, uh, the idea that Pakistan might win, might take a few wickets, was just taken out of the equation completely. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there was actually, there was thoughts of shuffling the batting order as well. I mean, obviously, Athers had scored his monumentally tedious 101st innings and, and Nasser wanted to <laughs> shove someone else up to, to, up to open and Nasser said, not, not a bit of it. This is my job. I'm going to do my job. And he did. Graham Hick played a very important hand. You know, Hick was much maligned and actually he didn't, he didn't um, last the winter. He, he played his last test in Sri Lanka in, uh, in the spring uh, before the next home summer. But his 40 was, was absolutely, absolutely sensational in, this, in the circumstances because, you know, he, he used his, his heavy front foot and just got to the got got to the pitch, even though it was getting tough to see. He just knew if he put his bat in the line with his power behind the shot, he could he could pierce the pierce the field, and he did. So he got forty and and thought worked the angles, just nudging it off his hip every every other shot. So it was, uh, yeah, the, the, there was there was rattling speed going on there, and you know England deployed Matthew Hoggard. He was the twelfth man. He was sent down to help with the sight screen to speed things up uh, because you know clearly the the ground staff were. Were kind of on mowing mowing side when it came to came to the, the between the overs. Obviously, the left hand, right hand switching around a wicket and over the wicket. So Hoggard was bending his back to put in a double shift to get the sight screen moved in time. Um, yeah, it all got a bit frantic, and then yeah, just in time, just enough time for a few press conferences, and everyone stormed off to uh, catch their flight. Um, yeah, wild times. I would love it, Miller, if this was the match that made you certain that you should be a cricket journalist. Well, funnily enough, it kind of was because I, I I'm, actually my my career was launched in the midst of that match. I I basically I, I managed to catch myself a press pass, um, but I didn't have any particular place to write. I mean, you talk about the fans in the ground; there were twelve. I knew I knew I knew every single person who was who had travelled on that on that trip. I was I essentially gone out. As a fan, with 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 a bit of a hope of, of getting a job out of the back of it, but all of a sudden, you know, the sun was setting, the the, the, the tension was mounting. I was thinking, I've got nothing to show for my time out here. What am I going to do? And so I went and um, went and showed what I'd written to Christopher Martin Jenkins, who um, very graciously offered to give me a give me a, um, a, a a chit to say that I that I was I was bona fide. I was able to wave that at, at Wisden when when I got back, and obviously Wisden became Crick Info a few months later. So I was. Uh, 
that was my way in. But but literally, that was the match that that that, that started my career. So from that dark night in Karachi, we'll move ahead ten years to two thousand ten, and this was in Sydney. Uh, this was the Asif and Sami show, and I know. Daniel, for a fact that you remember this very well, particularly when Australia were pulled out for 127. And Pakistan went on and took a significant first innings lead. And they ultimately had to chase down a target of, what was it, 176? Yep. In in, in that Sydney of, of 176. And they had plenty, plenty to spare. And you just thought, you just thought, and you probably knew that Pakistan were going to... I mean, do something dramatic. Um, it's an extension of the Australia theme, isn't it? Pakistan, this is just one side that Pakistan find impossibly hard to beat, um, especially in Australia. But those were magical times because Mohammad Asif was um, was in the prime of his career whenever he when he was on form. I don't think there was a more captivating bowler in the world to watch for a little while. And then on that first day, um, uh, I remember I, I remember Shane Watson, um, he felt Phil Hughes, the late Phil Hughes, and Ricky Ponting, um, uh, they just didn't have a hope when even Mohammad Sami, funnily enough, was firing around that time. And then, yeah, so 127 all out. Oh, it's never over there. But the fact that Pakistan put in such a good batting performance in their own first innings, it probably, I think, their the contributions right throughout the order. And then you take a 200 run lead anywhere in the world against any side, it's going to be a daunting one. But then again, obviously, the crucial. Uh, moments perhaps weren't in that four final fourth innings where Pakistan were destined to panic. It was more so that uh, ninth wicket partnership uh, between Mike Hussey and Peter Siddle. And, uh, Peter Siddle batted well, but Hussey was allowed to rotate the strike phenomenally easily. There were three dropped catches again. Uh, Kamran Akmal's keeping was famously um, horrendous. Um, uh, effectively, if I, that was effectively the match that launched Sarfraz Ahmed because Pakistan realized Kamran Akmal had to be ditched essentially. And uh, yeah, and so they put up, put up, I think, uh, oh, a 130-run partnership and suddenly 176. Funnily enough, I think that's the exact target that England was set um, in Karachi 10 years earlier. And, and and yeah, Pakistan under pressure succumbed again. Okay, Miller, tell me, am I being unfair to Australia here? But when I look at their bowling lineup of Doug Bollinger and Peter Siddle, who didn't pick a wicket in the second innings, Nathan Horitz and a pre-2013 Mitchell Johnson... This was Pakistan throwing away a test match. Panikistan, as I think they were, they were dubbed around that time. It was, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was a, it was a shocker. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, there've, there've been, there've been um, various uh, doubts and rumours circulating about about what went on there, and given what happened in in England a few months later with the with the spot fixing saga at Lords. I mean, but no, I mean, you, you've also got to give credit, you know, to where it's due to Australia. I mean, they they they, they turned it around. Uh, I've never felt a 176-run target feel like such a foregone conclusion for the bowling side. Even the way the commentator spoke, the body language of the Pakistan players, it just looked like they weren't up to chasing that target. And uh, there was maybe, perhaps there was no intensity. There didn't appear to be enough desire, certainly. Um, uh, and that was evident since that uh, ninth wicket partnership in the third innings as well. It's it's one of those where, yes, it's it, it was a it's a it's a painful one to take if you're a Pakistan supporter. Having said that, though, I mean, I I. I... I just echo what you said about Mohammed Asif at the top there. I mean, what a, what a bowler he was. I mean, you know, for all, for all the talk that Mohammed Amir was the great the great loss to to world bowling, given his age and all the rest of it, when it came to the the spot fix. I mean, Mohammed Asif, I thought was just a, a different level of technician. I mean, he was the one bowler that Kevin Peterson always said he had absolutely no clue about how to play. He just he was able to curl, you know, line and length with just wicked late outswing, late in swing. All the tools, he, 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 absolute phenomenal technician, and um, yeah, I, I remember watching him on on the England tour in uh, what I mean, two thousand and five. It must have been in in Baggy Jinnah in Lahore, and he took six wickets in uh, in a in a tour game, and was just a just on a different level. It was it, it was like clear that this this guy the sky's the limit for him, and uh, yeah, sad that sad that um yeah he basically completed the grand slam of. Uh, of offences, really, didn't he? So it was a bit of a bit of a bit of a shame, but no, it, it was certainly one of my favourite bowlers to to watch in 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 the time that his career did did last. He had the attitude to go for it. I remember in 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 an interview he was talking about how he dismissed Michael Clark in the first innings, and he said, "I was going to set him up um, with a few in swinging deliveries before I went for the outswinger and took his uh, uh, outside edge." But to my frustration, he got out during the setup, and I thought, "How useless is this guy?" So. <laughs> Yeah, um, he had he he, he he had he had that sort of temperament that makes you think, oh, it's a damn shame this career didn't work out. 
Yeah, interestingly, Miller. So on our latest episode of Dream Team, we had uh, Daniel, we had Osman, and we had Ahmed Nakhvi uh, picking Pakistan's greatest Test eleven post nineteen ninety, and Mohammad Asif was a sure shot pacer on in the eleven. In fact, the argument was between first change, which would be between Bakar and Shoaib Akhtar. Do you agree with that? Would you also put Mohammad Asif as one of Pakistan's greatest Test bowlers over the past thirty years? If, are, are we talking about a four-man attack or a three-man attack? Daniel, it was a three-man attack with Saklen as the spinner, right? Yeah, a three-man pace attack with Saklen as spinner. So we were basically picking a Pakistan eleven of the past 30 years. And uh, uh, Usman, Amr, and I were unanimous. You had to have Asif in there. Every Pakistan fan would like to have Asif in a side like that because he, he's such a, a... Pakistan produced some great bowlers, but he was unique in his skill set. And I don't think his skill set has been replicated in the past 30 years. Yeah, I mean, he's like, he's like Mohammed Abbas, but with extra pace. I mean, he, he's, he's just, he, yeah, he's, 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 a, he's an absolute genius. I, I completely agree. I mean, leaving show about would be, would be a tough call, but um, he, was, he was a bit of a daisy. He, some, some days he did, some days he didn't. Whereas, um, yeah, Asif was on it like a bonnet every single time, as far as I was concerned. Okay, let's get back to the final match on our list of Pakistan's most dramatic defeats. And Daniel, it's again a target of, what, what is it, 176? Is it? Well, what's what's with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just <laughs> looking at the scorecard, and I honestly don't believe this, but it's again yeah. a 176 target set by New Zealand in Abu Dhabi in 2018 to Pakistan. And at this point, Daniel, Pakistan, they were they were so comfortable, yeah, at 130 for three. Yeah, I'm amazed I didn't pick up on the 176. But yes, I was I was actually on the report for this game, and uh, it's it's probably the most dramatic um, rip it all up rewrite I've ever done. Because, uh, <laughs> because 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 I had I had my report prepared. There there was there was a sense that Pakistan might panic at some point, but for this game there was there was no real belief Pakistan would actually lose it because yeah, 130 for three, 147 for four. Um, uh, around then, Pakistan. Uh, I remember the only crucial thing was Asad Shafiq um, lost his wicket on the final ball before lunch, and there was a sense that the momentum might slightly be with New Zealand. But never to the extent that um, uh, they lose it, um, they collapse essentially. They lose six wickets for twenty-four runs uh, on a pitch that wasn't doing very much against a bowler in Ijaz Patel, who in the first innings was it wasn't quite clear he could run through a side like he did Pakistan in that. Match. So yeah, um, I think I think one thing that it, it's one of those matches that Azhar Ali might look back on and think for a man who who's played who had played eight years as he had until then not to be able to shepherd the strike effectively enough and uh, lead the team to victory with four or five runs to go. I think that's something that a top batsman, uh, a game that a top batsman finishes off and Azad will regret that. Yeah, I think more than Ajaz Patel also, Miller, for, for what, what what I remember from that test match is Neil Wagner when he came in when Pakistan were 130 for three, needing less than 50 runs to win and he got Asad Shafiq out and then immediately after, Babar Azam was run out for, for Pakistan and that... That really turned the game on its head. Yeah, I mean Neil Wagner, fascinating bowler, and Jared Kimber did a did a very interesting analysis of him the other day, just saying there's, there's never been a bowler like him. He's the he never gets a new ball. He's this he's this first first change thug who just uh, comes in and hits the deck every single ball with his left arm line. He's um yeah he's he's an amazing amazingly different type of character, and he's at you all the time. He, you know he's not interested in line length. He's interested in your head. And, uh, and and in going for your head, he's probably going to get you out because he's going to keep going until he's got you. It's uh, his his stamina is extraordinary, and obviously that's what you need on 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 the sort of pitches you get in the UAE, which uh, often aren't the liveliest you're ever going to encounter. Someone someone with his ticker is exactly the foil you want at, at the other end. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting just looking at the uh, that attack that they had because you know New Zealand's attack is is. In my opinion, one one of the one of the greatest attacks of, of of the modern era with with Bolt and Southie and Co. But obviously, you know, Bolt bowled seven overs, no wickets. Southie's not playing. Colin de Grandom three overs. Um, Ish Sodi uh, and Patel and, and Wagner. So Wagner's the guy who 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 takes up the takes up the the hitman role for his thirteen overs. Uh, and then it's over to the spinners. It's um it's a different way for New Zealand to to skin a cat. And obviously, you know, they've had Batori in the past, but um. Spin is not traditionally the way that they've run through sides. So again, to 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 pull it off in that respect, uh, uh, credit to them. I mean, you know, but they're a far more versatile team and a far more dangerous team than than well, yeah, everyone everyone underestimates them, including England in the World Cup final recently. It's uh, it, it's standard for poor poor old New Zealand. Uh, but every now and again, 
uh, they come up trumped in, in a very memorable way like this. And the context here um, is that New Zealand did better in the UAE against Pakistan in those 10 years than arguably any other side. Because when in 2015, in 2014 or 2015, they came to um, the UAE, they came away with a one-all series draw. Brendan McCullum played, I, th- I think, scored a magnificent counter-attacking double century. But then in this series, in this, in this game, without wanting to sound too ungracious, I'm a huge fan of New Zealand, they didn't really do much until that final session to deserve winning that game. They were poor with the bat. They were... They were reasonably ordinary with the ball in the first innings. And then if Pakistan had won, as they should have, by five or six wickets, it would just have been a routine Pakistan win in the UAE, as they'd been doing for eight or nine years. But then, obviously, once uh, New Zealand knew they could put the pressure on Pakistan and Wagner's really good at stifling um, uh, at stifling a batting side under pressure, and Pakistan certainly were under pressure around then, um, uh, yeah, the door opened and New Zealand barged through. So we've gone through, what is it, five dramatic, uh, Pakistan test defeats over the past 20 years. We had just one a few days ago. Danyal, leave your journalist hat aside. As a Pakistan fan, how do you recover from this? <laughs> um, uh, as Usman said earlier, we, we have been through worse. Uh, this is this is a bad defeat, um, but it's one of those that might not entirely be of our own making. Um, uh, I thought Nisbah was reasonably gracious, if, if a little dull, as you'd expect, in his letter when he, um, uh, we, he tried to explain away the defeat and he said that... Uh, Chris Walks and Josh Butler were brilliant, which they were. Um, so this is one of those where, yes, Pakistan maybe could have uh, batted England out of the game and didn't, but you have to pay credit to the opposition. So it's not one of those that will hurt in the same way as some of these other ones will. But no question, the fact that England start poorly and Pakistan had the, this chance to come away with a 1-0 lead and then potentially uh, end a run, which actually has been going on since Pakistan last came to England. They've now lost seven away tests on the bounce, um, going all the way back to Lords uh, in I think it was Lords, not the Oval, in 2018 where they won. And since then, when they were beaten at Leeds, they've lost every single away test since. So yeah, it's, it's a blow for Pakistan, make no mistake. And uh, they just have to guard against a horrifically poor performance, which sometimes happens. They don't want to get thumped in the second test because then they just walk away with this door being a disaster. I can easily see that happen. And uh, Azura and Miss both have to guard that that doesn't. Miller, one final word from you. What would you expect from the final two tests of Pakistan's tour to England? More of the same? One thing I know to expect from Pakistan is the unexpected. I mean, I, I have absolutely no idea. I, Daniel's right. They, they, may, they may collapse in a heap in two days. Uh, that'd be entirely likely. Equally, they could just turn it around and win an absolute thriller with, um, you know, every single one of their bowlers up for it and ripping them to shreds. Um, they've got no Ben Stokes, remember? So who knows what the balance of the team will be. Uh, but they certainly showed enough with their bowling, um, you know, with a, bit, with a bit, bit more imagination and a bit more luck. Um, I think that that attack has has certainly got the measure of of several of uh, several of England's players. I mean, I, I, Abbas looked too hot to handle for most of the most of the top order, to be perfectly honest. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not going to predict anything. All all I all I will expect is yeah, we'll all, we'll all come to the end of it thinking typical Pakistan. Whether that mean whether that's them being thrashed or them thrashing England, you know, it, 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 typical is that. How do you predict that? You know, they'll they'll come up with what they come up with. And we'll all just go along for the ride. One thing's for sure, it is going to be must-watch test cricket. Miller and Daniel, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's Stump Mike. Thank you. Can't say I had fun, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I had fun. It's a beat, beat to talk about England miserabilia in the 1990s. So.